0: There's a lot to get to over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I'm Tyler Axness, Jason Matthews, co-host of What the Hell Happened This Week. Um, but Jason, you know, with with everything that we've got to touch on, I think it's important that we start with the fact that, it, as people that regularly listen to this know, uh, we record this Friday morning. And uh, as we're sitting here recording this right now, it is uh, September 11th, 19 years ago. A lot of the people out there uh, uh, remembering there's a lot of ceremonies going on. In fact, I saw... Uh, you know, at the time when, uh, the first plane hit, you know, that the president was aboard air force one, they stood in a moment silence. I saw both vice presidents, meaning Joe Biden, Mike Pence, uh, uh honoring, uh, and memorializing, uh, the date as well together. So I, I think it's just appropriate that we start there and acknowledge mm-hmm. what today is. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's a day that changed everyone's lives forever. It was the um, it was really the uh, the end of the nineteen nineties. We had a hiatus from history, um, from the fall of the Berlin Wall, really until nine eleven, and um, it, it ushered in it ushered in the twenty first century. And we've um, the twentieth century was the bloodiest century, but um, the twenty first century hasn't been a smooth ride at all. It, it, no. it changed no. it changed your lives, and I had one of those moments this week because I brought this up. To my students in my in both of my classes at bismarck state college um nine eleven to them is history they were they were they were either babies or they weren 't born yet this this is this freshman class was born in two thousand and two so this uh-huh. is this is history they 've known no other world than the post nine eleven world
0: i uh not you know everyone 's Oh, I remember where I was, but yeah, I was in that weird window. I think in adolescence to adulthood. I think I mean, not not to be overly cliche. Uh, we grew up that day. I was uh, I remember sitting in the hallway, uh, in Leeds, uh, where you know Leeds Public School, uh, high school, and uh, uh, our history teacher comes out and says, "Hey, did you hear what happened?" As we were sitting in the hallway before our first class started, mm-hmm. didn't really get, did, didn't understand, didn't didn't get it. Then uh, I remember being in. Uh, I don't remember if it was algebra, geometry, whatever. It was a math class. And I remember our teacher, uh, because we weren't learning anything. I mean, they was all turned to the the, the TVs were on. And uh, our Mm -hmm. teachers, obviously, were watching. And I remember in in reflecting back how at that moment, our teacher turning around saying, hey, you guys don't understand what's going on. And that moment just became like the snap to reality uh, for us. And, uh, you know, as like you say, Uh, The world changed
1: and our lives changed. And here we are 19 years later. Hard, hard, hard to believe that. And, you know, next year, the 20th anniversary. So there'll be many more um, documentaries and reflections on it. Um, This is it's something that you you can't forget. Mm -hmm. This is um, this is this was our generation's Pearl Harbor. Uh, um, in some ways it, it, it was deeper than, than Pearl Harbor because, uh, Pearl Harbor happened at a Naval base in Hawaii. It was, it was symmetrical warfare in that case. It was the Japanese attacking us, us Naval fleet in Pearl Harbor in 41. Um, this was asymmetrical warfare. This was, this was pure, uh, terrorism, uh, in, in its most horrifying form, uh, you know, you, where you commandeer. Commercial aircraft, and it changed every aspect of our lives. It, it it saw the emergence of of the Homeland Security Department. It saw this consolidation of of the um, national security state in the country, which has had huge ramifications for civil liberties. Uh, we have it, it it altered our politics in the sense that we then. Um, Went to war in Afghanistan. We are still technically at war in Afghanistan. Yeah. Nineteen years at war. Of course, most famously the Iraq War, yeah. um, and and that has had political you know reverberations ever since. Um, you know that 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 impacts that colors all of our politics. You can draw you can draw a line from nine eleven to today. Just on American politics and and um, and see the where all the dots have been connected that have given given or taken us to this moment in time
0: well let's do do that a little bit because you mentioned uh, DHS but it, I want to uh, I want to close out the 9 the eleven you know the thing with uh, you know the way George Bush uh, president at the time responded. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the famous, you know, standing uh, on the rubble, you know, saying, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I can hear you and soon they're all going to hear us. And that type of leadership that was sorely needed at the time when we just had been attacked and we had, you know, thousands of uh, fellow citizens, you know, murdered terrorism. And uh, then, you know, the unity that we had then now, 19 years was fast forward to uh, today and how divisive things are. I mean, last night was the opening of the NFL. Football season. And the, the players and, and coaching and trainers get to the center part of the field. And uh, just to show a, a sign of unity, it wasn't during the national anthem, it was after all that. Locked arms uh, there, just in a sign of unity in the crowd of about 16,000 people. Not all of them, but you could hear on the broadcast booze to the sign of American unity. How far yeah. we've come from 19 years ago, that tragedy, to where we are today of, uh, how, how just we <laughs> act towards one another. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, it's a tragedy.
1: Well, we had, we had a couple things going for us on nine 11. First of all, we had leadership. Um, you remember, you know, George W. Bush, he had just been president for a few months yeah. and, um, had gotten elected under the most contentious of circumstances with the Florida recount. And he gets in there and, um, in retrospect, uh, you know, and you saw it at the time, but but, you know, in retrospect, looking at it today, um, did a magnificent job in those days after after 9-11. Now, you can question the wisdom of going into Iraq. That's going to be a debate without end. Mm-hmm. But but the leadership, the steadiness is this great, great story about Bush, um, the it was about two or three days after the attacks, and he's in the Oval Office, and he's getting all of the reports, and he's meeting with his his National Security Team, and he just lets out this deep sigh, and he he slumps in his chair, and he looks up at the ceiling in the Oval Office as Bob Bob Woodward. <laughs> See, we're coming full circle yeah, here. We'll get there. Uh, oh, yeah. Bob Woodward reported in one of his books, Bush at War, and he just gave out this sigh, and he says, "I was supposed to be the Education President." and now I'm a war president, but I've got a job to do. Yeah, And that was it. He just, it he, he was a moment, as Condoleezza Rice remembers, there was, self, there was a moment there, a fleeting moment of self-pity, and then he pulled himself back, so I, you know, steeled himself to the task. So we had that. The other thing we had going for us, too, is so we didn't have social media. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah, social know. media didn't come on the scene till 2006. so We didn't have social media. I, I, I wonder, uh, and I've thought of this um, probably too often than I should. That if God forbid another 9/11 were to happen in this country, I don't think that this country would come together the way we did after 9/11. No, no. and I frankly don't. I frankly don't think that. Um, I think the country would tear itself apart. To be quite honest about it.
0: it's uh if you if you're listening and you're logged into that hellscape that is facebook just take a couple of days just log off yeah and by the way uh for those uh, that are you know sharing all the i'm done with the nfl nobody gives a shit just if you don't want to watch it, just don't watch it, you know, but everything that is to rile up and get likes and to get shares within the people that are like-minded, there's an instinct that has grown into us of I got to put this out there for everybody to see. And and I got to just, you know, fire people up. And that is not necessarily healthy uh, to democracy, but also personal relationships.
1: No, no. I mean, you, you have people, you have people that are now saying, um, in, in various parts of the country, um, depending on these election results, I'm going to move.
0: Well, let's be real, Jason. I mean, that, that's after damn near every election.
1: And well, that's true. But I mean, you're know, people say, I just want, and, and, I, and it's, it's really been magnified because of the pandemic. I mean, okay. there, there's an example. We have a, a, if we can transition here, I guess this will be the segue. Um, we have a, a medical 9-11 happening right now. You know, we, we lost 3,000 souls on September 11th, 2001. We have lost 60 times that uh, wow. since March to this pandemic. We are, we are averaging 1,200 people dying uh, every day um, in this country. That You know, we're, we're averaging three 9-11s per week. And and this is a country where you can always measure the health of a democracy uh, by by a various set of factors. But one factor that that you can measure the health of democracy is the level of politics in society and that's what you saw last night with the nfl that's what you've been seeing for the last you know six seven eight years already yeah. is that everything is political you put on a mask it's a political statement um you 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 decide not to go out in public or go to to large crowds oh you're 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 believing the experts or you're you're believing hoaxes everything is seen through this political prism that's not healthy for a democracy
0: no, no, uh, and you're right. I mean, every single thing. You know, if I, write, if I write with a damn red pen for one day,
1: <laughs> oh, how dare you, you do, <laughs> choose the red pen over the blue pen? I had somebody tell me one time. I haven't watched the show in years now, but for a while there, I was watching Blue Bloods on CBS. All right, yeah. never All right. watched. So uh, I, I mean, it was it was something. It was. And then after a while, you know, I I don't like. I got tired of. Danny or Donnie Wahlberg, and it's like okay, same shtick every week. But but I had somebody say, see, you know, I kind of like I kind of like the Woods, and they came back to me said, well, then you must be a Republican. You know, Republicans watch that show. It's like, are you giving? Give me a break. Oh give me a break. A show is just a show. A show. It's like it's like when Freud lit up a cigar, and this woman goes up to him because of course he was always into phallic symbols and everything was back to your mother and sex. And she comes up to him and says, what does a cigar symbolize? And he took a puff of his cigar. And he looked at her and he said, "Ma'am, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar uh okay um
0: where where are we at right now? Uh, everything's political, okay, that's where it is." Uh, <laughs> where do we even transition uh oh hey here's something political uh, you talk about where you know in the middle of this pandemic do you want to start by talking about bill or uh, bob woodward or do you want to talk about the, the senate uh, getting back in session and the fact that the senate uh, whittle down bill that they offered uh,
1: this week was blocked in the senate which one i'll let you choose well it, it, we'll start with the senate because because this is <laughs> this is the divide that that's taking place here the the senate democrats and, and Rand Paul blocked the bill yesterday. The Democrats are making the argument that does not do nearly enough to help small businesses and first responders and the states in particular, which are going to which we're heading to a financial fiscal crisis okay. with what's happening in the states. Um, and Rand Paul, of course, is making the ideological argument that we're spending too damn much. So that that's his that's his argument here. Um, but but what you look at Senate Republicans and what McConnell put out there, uh, it was about it was three billion dollars which is, is, is a nice little chunk of change but not nearly what the democrats want and there's political motivation there uh there, there's political concern on the part of senate republicans that they need to do something to show that they're that they're concerned that they're acting on it that they get this in there before the election on the other hand uh senate democrats are digging in their heels. Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats are digging in their heels saying it's not nearly enough. But Pelosi behind the scenes is getting pressure from many Democrats, Democratic freshmen who come from conservative or Republican leaning districts. They're saying, hey, we've got to do something here. Right. Uh, so so there's there's going to be a lot of pressure uh, on both McConnell, who wants to maintain his Senate majority and Pelosi, of course, who doesn't want to lose some of these freshman Democrats to do something. And of course, Pelosi doesn't want to do anything that's going to help Trump and, 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 you know, Trump, on the other hand, too, is just not a factor in any of these negotiations. I mean, he sends up his white house chief of staff. He sends up, um, you know, well, secretary, right. secretary, Steve Mnuchin, but you don't have the president picking up the phone and talking to Pelosi because his feelings were hurt because he was impeached. Well, well and, it, it, oh, it, you go ahead. I'll, I'll well, you ahead. don't have that tabula in the cabinet room of the president with congressional leaders. Well, and uh, you know, the, the
0: angle I took, I had Congressman Kelly Armstrong on my Mm KFGO radio show two to four Monday through Friday, 790 (laughs) AM. You can go to KFGO.com there. That's my one plug for the week.
1: Uh, Number one in all the markets where it airs. All right. (laughs) Thanks man.
0: Uh, But I had uh, the Congressman on because you know, he's obviously in the house and he wants to get something done. He thinks that there's, uh, there's agreement. Um, you know, a, a broad agreement uh, on a, a number of things. But I asked him, I go, look, it's sitting here in Fargo, North Dakota. I'm watching the house Democrats negotiate with a uh, white house staff. Uh, Are Senate Republicans even a part of this equation? Because I mean, look, you can have Mitch McConnell, who I've said before, I think is the person that broke the Senate or at least a key factor in it. And, Mm. uh, you know, they sat on a bill, even though it wasn't a perfect bill from the House for weeks and for weeks and they did nothing. And now he's trying to come out and say, hey, we have this urgent need to do something, which he's right. But let's go ahead and take a step back and wonder, well, where was the delay in all of this? And but with all that being said and done, I don't see necessarily the Senate Republicans playing as big a role as what they should, because it seems like it's Nancy Pelosi, the House negotiations, Mark Meadows, and Steve Mnuchin. And you know what? You Senate, you know, pat them on the head and just go sit down.
1: Well, reading it wrong. No, Senate Republicans haven't been a factor in anything for the last four years. Fair enough. Fair enough. enough. This is pathetic. I mean, back in the nineteen nineties, the United or Nineteen Eighties, United Negro College Fund had that wonderful, it was one of the best, it was voted one of the best marketing campaigns of the 20th century. And they had that tagline that people still remember. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. A Senate seat's a terrible thing to waste. And there are a lot of wasted Senate seats. The Senate is a chamber that was built for giants and it's filled with pygmies today. I, I, and, and, and there is a, there is a, there is a battle going on to see who can be the shortest pygmy. I mean, you have, you have a guy like, you know, I'll just come on and say it like Kevin Kramer, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'll um, get to him. Well, yeah. But I mean, you got a guy like Kevin Kramer and then Marsha Blackburn out of Tennessee. Uh, they all think that they, that they serve with president Trump. Yeah. You don't serve with president Trump. You don't serve the president. You serve your constituents. You serve the state that you're representing You're a co-equal branch of government, act like it, act like it. Th- that, that's the thing. And that, that's the biggest problem of all. I keep coming yeah. back to people and they always say, well, we've got to have change and get a new president in there. That's fine. You can change presidents. We changed Clinton and we changed Bush and then we changed Obama and now we got Trump, but here's the bottom line, unless you fix Congress and I'm, yeah. and, and specifically let us zero in on this, the Senate, unless you fix the Senate where the Senate is a functioning body yeah. nothing's going to change in our country you know the house is designed to be responsive to the will of the people it's majority rule in the in the house you know if, if you're a minority member in the house it's not real pleasant I'm sure congressman Armstrong will testify to that but but that's that's the way the house is designed the Senate is designed to be more deliberative and the Senate is fundamentally broken and and I agree with you about mcconnell but i would also tell anyone you really want to go back and, and take a look at of all things the panama treaty debate in the late 1970s where you really saw the beginning of the end of the senate as it had been known up until this time so that we're talking about 40 years now where we've seen this evolution but the senate is fundamentally broken
0: I have made the argument and I'll do it one more time. I believe that being a Senate Republican right now has got to be the easiest job in America. You go out there, you don't do a damn thing. You you put out press releases back, you know, you have your, your staff take care of that. Then you go on recess. And then you come back. And if you are, if you fail at doing your job, which they have done for a number of years now, then they get bailed out with executive orders from the white house. They have just a, a dereliction of duty right now. They just sit out there. They don't do a damn thing besides bitch and moan that nothing's getting done uh, while they neglect to acknowledge that they play a key role in all of this. So, mm-hmm. all right, there, I'm going to step off my- uh, Got that ice. out of your system this morning? Yeah, don't worry, I'll double down here <laughs> this afternoon.
1: Well, I'm an institutionalist. I, I'm concerned. I'm concerned about the Senate. Uh, because, because the Senate—you look at the Senate—oversees or has, because of advice and consent, has a great say in foreign policy. Uh, the judiciary uh, appointments. Uh, the, the Senate is a unique body, and the Senate had been designed by the framers, as George Washington uh, apocryphally had said, uh, might be an urban legend, but but he had said that you know the House is the is the teacup where you pour in the hot passions of the people and when it overflows into the saucer that's the senate where the saucer where the passions are cooled uh the senate has just simply become a dysfunctional hyperpartisan body mm-hmm and and yeah, you yeah. talk to senators you talk to senators who who are there behind closed doors by everything that you've read that, that we've read but you talk to former senators they talk about how how depressing it is there how nothing nothing gets done and the senate used to be the ultimate the ultimate prize in american politics i mean after the presidency people longed to be a united states senator the prestige that came with it the responsibility you were in the world's most exclusive club and greatest deliberative body and today it's just become this, this sideshow.
0: Yeah. It has. And, uh, let's just leave it there. We got so many other things. I know we've only got a short amount of time. Let's talk about the state of the race, uh, right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I mean, you mentioned like people are talking about needing to win the presidency. There's a number of Senate seats that are up for grabs right now. Mm -hmm. Um, one of them is in Minnesota. Let's start, let's keep it local here. Minnesota. You got uh, Tina Smith, Jason Lewis, uh, a poll came out just this week, uh, showing that Tina Smith with an edge, uh, but also shows, uh, Joe Biden with, with, uh, the edge as well. There's been a lot of, uh, a lot of talk. In fact, if you're listening, go to ndexplains.com com. In fact, maybe that's how you got to this podcast. Um, that's the uh, website I created. I write on Jason. has created uh, some columns as well there, uh, but Tessa Gould also, a, a, you know, a columnist uh, from time to time and wrote about the state of Minnesota and how there's always something about Minnesota and how close it came in 16 and how there's kind of an unease going into 2020 mm-hmm. right now for the presidency. And ultimately what that means for the, the United States Senate, uh, y- your thoughts on where at least Minnesota rests right now, Jason,
1: we talked about this a few weeks back. Um, Cause I'd spend some time in Minnesota. My wife's family's from Minnesota and um, you can't, you can't throw a rock in rural Minnesota without hitting a Trump sign. Mm -hmm. or a trump flag Uh, this is i think what's happening in minnesota is what what you're seeing uh in reports across the country in rural america um good good example that's in in rural pennsylvania where you have ancestral democrats traditional democrats that are moving over into trump and maybe they had already been weak democrats for the last few years but but now they're they're moving over to trump and it's primarily on culture it's it's primarily on culture and I think that in Minnesota's case, uh, you know, maybe sometime we'll have a Minnesota political expert on. But I think in Minnesota's case, the the effects of the riots in Minneapolis are having having a profound impact. There, there's there's something else at play here, and that is uh, there was a study that was done. I saw it a couple weeks back, where it was um, areas that that are um, where they have extraction economies. So mining, um, oil, natural gas, those areas, particularly in the mining areas that you see out in Pennsylvania and up in the Iron Range in Minnesota, those were usually the backbone of the Democratic Party in terms of union support. Well, now as the unions have gone down in their influence and cultural issues are now trumping, no pun intended, economic issues, you're seeing Republicans uh, emerging here. And Democrats bear some of the blame here. Um, because, you know, you had Hillary Clinton back, uh, four years ago that stood in front of an old coal mine in, uh, in West Virginia and says, I'm going to shut all these coal mines down. Huh. You know, you, you, you have, you have some Democrats pushing for, uh, the green new deal. Joe Biden is not one of them. Joe Biden's very much a, a moderate in that regard. Um, in, in this, this, of course, you're dealing with people's livelihoods, uh, and, it 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 plays into a narrative of democrats that have become um more urban and more coastal and and so that that we're seeing all of this the kind of this witch's brew coming together and you really see it reflected in in rural america
0: well and and to that uh that last point on uh the extraction um you know the the areas we extract i mean north Dakota Western North Dakota is certainly one of them, uh, where we 've got coal mines that are closing down, and you know what Th- there's there's economics that play a factor it 's not just politics, but let 's talk about the politics just for a moment because i I really want to get to the 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 Atlantic article last week and the bob <laughs> the Bob Woodward because I mean obviously that 's the hot items uh that we we haven 't touched we on we might
1: be going extra innings here folks yeah, yeah, bear with us. <laughs>
0: I wouldn't encourage you to skip forward, but you know what? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be angry if you did. Uh, But you know, this whole, uh, the green new deal, for example, or just any political, Hey, we're going to, there's going to be job creation here, you know, but if you're a, coal miner, you grew up, you've been doing that your entire life, or you're extracting uh, oil from the ground. You've been doing that for years. You had a great paying job. I mean, if you think about the individual, instead of just saying, Oh yeah, well, we're transition you from coal to solar, uh, you know, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. th- th- there is a reluctance I've got to assume because if somebody were to come knock on my door right now and say, you know what, Tyler, uh, I know you enjoy doing radio, but um, you know, you're going to go out and uh, you're going to work on the power lines. You know, it's, yep. it's completely, yep. and then do expect me just to be welcoming of that, you know, it, there's a, I, I think a, uh, a divide in what the, the plan on paper says versus what the individual who's in that industry wants for themselves and their family. And until Democrats figure that out, that they can't just go mandate that you're no longer working at coal,
1: you're doing wind. They're yep. not going to win this argument. The, the Democrats have a problem and And they didn't solve the problem. They've helped themselves by nominating Biden. Uh, because Biden's an old-school Democrat. That really comes—that really comes through, and that's reflective in the polls as well, and that in how he's performing in certain areas, but underperforming in others. But but the Democrats have developed um, somewhere along the line. I I I believe it. It be it began under Barack Obama, where there's this this allergy to talking to particularly white working-class voters, mm-hmm. and there is an elitism that takes place, where many Democrats believe that white working class is synonymous with racism and and are there racists amongst white working class voters yes there is okay there's racists in every aspect of society Mm -hmm. that's just a fact of life here you have to connect with them at a gut level bill clinton understood that intuitively um You have to be able to connect with them and talk about lunch bucket tabletop issues and and talk about their needs, their aspirations, their hopes. And you have to listen. That's the key. You have to listen. Democrats come in with a 14 point plan or a 17 point plan, you know, or a 71 point plan to rural West Virginia and say, hey, this is what we're going to do for you to transition you. You're talking about generations that have grown up where working in the coal mines was not only a part of life, it was the ticket to a good life. Uh, it was a ticket to you could make a good living and stay in the area that where you were born. You can hunt, you can fish, you have your family and your friends. This is the life that you knew the mine, the church, the family, that was the bedrock of your community. Democrats, haven't been able to talk to that anymore Republicans have been able to come in and talk to resentments in many cases and and if you really want to dig deeper into this um, Thomas Friedman in the New York Times wrote a superb column this week about the politics of humiliation and and Friedman gets it he's talking about how in this is with rural America, working class voters, but but you know anybody that, that's really backing Trump is how, the, how Trumpism has become um, bigger than the man itself. It is it, it elicits this emotional reaction. This is a fight against the meritocracy, whereas we, the Democrats have this problem where it is if you, you've got to go to college and get that four-year degree and, and you move into the middle class. And the whole problem with that is, you and I have done that, is that the very thing that supposedly makes you middle class saddles you with debt for years after <laughs> once yeah. you're in, in the middle class. <sighs> Whereas what they're not talking about is um, you know, go to, going to a trade school, going and getting a two-year degree or a certificate. We're not talking about the fact that many small business owners in this country, the business that they own is in their van or in their truck. My father is a prime example of that. Who's now pretty much retired with his construction company. He went to carpentry school. He learned how to be a carpenter. He built a a contracting business for himself, put three kids through college. My brother went to a a program for carpentry. He's taking over the business. They're doing quite fine for themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, Sherrod Brown, the, the senator from Ohio, is the Democrat that I thought would have been an ideal presidential candidate against Donald Trump for many reasons that we won't get into, but not the least of which is the fact that he understands intuitively the dignity of work. And he says the Democrats have to start talking to people who shower after they come home from work rather than showering before they go to work in the morning. You're wrong.
0: He, no he's not he, he is not wrong no he's well, not when he talked about saddle the debt, he gave me a pause and you know what if I just would have dedicated it, that one year to actually my studies at NDSU instead of to the <laughs> the after hour activities
1: maybe that hey, debt wouldn't have been you, as high as what it is you should have talked to John Matthews because John Matthews <laughs> my father told me when he dropped me off at UND the Athens of the Prairie um, Whoa. Me, <laughs> <laughs> I'm fighting words to you <laughs> He told me, he says, son, he says, don't forget, he said to have fun. And he said, I'm going to give you a little piece of advice. He said, you're going to learn a lot about life over these next four or five years. And he said, and sometimes he said the best lessons are in life are the morning after when you're wondering why you did that or when you're, <laughs> or when you're worshiping in front of a porcelain throne. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he says, you're going to learn, you're going to learn about limits. You're going to learn about responsibility. And he said, uh, don't, don't be so hard on yourself. Enjoy it. Uh, but don't be stupid.
0: Yeah, I just wish, uh, in hindsight, that for a whole year, it wasn't as expensive as as it wanted it be One expensive kegger. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Anyway, let's move on. Hey, do you want to talk about uh, – uh, let's go last week. So, hey, here, here's going to be our out that this is going to be a longer what the hell happened this week because, you know, we didn't have a recap from last week. Let's uh, just go a full hour and be done. All right. Fair all right let's do it. Let's do it. We've got a lot to cover here. I've got time. Um, I've got time, too. Uh, so, last Thursday, uh, my jaw hit the floor because the Atlantic came out with an article uh, and that that it has the Commander in Chief, Donald J. Trump, the President of the United States, uh, from sources, yes, albeit anonymous, multiple people mind you and i don't think you need uh uh you know a five-year degree (laughs) to uh, to to put the pieces together and draw a conclusion of who these sources are that spoke but you've got people saying and alleging that the president of the united states commander-in-chief called uh veterans and those who died that are resting in a cemetery overseas losers and suckers i can't believe it jason it, because I have no doubt in my mind that he actually said it. And if you're going to come out and say, well, you know what? Uh, and they, they need to put their name to it. I don't think that that's necessarily wrong. I think that I'm not going to argue that I wish these sources would say, Hey, I am so-and-so and I was there, but I could also say pause for a moment because think about the people who have put their names to this. Think about uh, Lieutenant uh, Colonel Vindman. And what happened to him and the retaliation that not only he, but his family have gone through, but you have all of this taking place. And it seems like if you want to use cliches, the chink in the armor that you know, this was a, this was a turning point in my opinion yet again, that has this campaign for the reelection of Donald Trump scrambling.
1: Well, we're, we're 50, we're 53 days out from election day. And Donald Trump has spent the last week and a half on defense, where he is having to, first of all, explain and defend himself against what came out in Jeffrey Goldberg's article in The Atlantic, and then of course with the Woodward book that came, that's coming out next week. So any day that Donald Trump is spending on defense and not trying to define Joe Biden is a lost day. And you would be you'd be crazy and stupid to count Donald Trump out of this election. But you have to also be a realist and say, you know, his window to make a comeback is starting to close here. Um, I think that you know you just have so much this this cascade, this never never ending avalanche. We've had this permanent avalanche now for the last four years of revelations that keep coming out, and and it gets the Twitter sphere, and it gets it gets cable news up into a lather, and then everybody comes back and they says they they ask you know this could be it you know is this going to be it is this going to be what brings Donald Trump. Down, there's, there's early evidence now that the Atlantic story um, has cut through the clutter. You know, 42% is going to be for Donald Trump. And I've heard this the last few weeks about people who are saying, how can 40, you know, the Democrats, how can 40% of the American people be for Donald Trump? Well, go back to history. Uh, you know, Herbert Hoover won 40%. Goldwater won 39%. McGovern, 37%. Carter got 40% when he was running for re-election. And, and Bush, George H.W. Bush got 40, 37% when he was lost re-election. There's 40% of the electorate that's always going to go for the other side. Democrats are obsessed about that 40 or 42 or 44%. You just got to worry about the 50% to get you over the finish line. But But there's nothing that's going to persuade the 42% that are rock rid for Trump right now but that they're not going to decide the election no. uh, it's going to be decided with uh, you know those independents out there it's gonna be decided primarily in the suburbs. And there's evidence in, in the recent um, um, poll that came out um, from uh, Monmouth that uh, in fact, there's some evidence that it's, it's resonating. In fact, there was a, the question was um, seven in 10 Americans believe Donald Trump said those things. Now I've gotta come out in defense of anonymous sources here because people who bitch about anonymous sources don't understand the whole point that anonymous sources provide. To a free press, and if you want a really good defense of anonymous sources, you look this week at an article that came out from Thomas DeFrank, who is a legendary print reporter for the for the, for Newsweek for many years, and he was a top political correspondent. He was a White House correspondent, and Newsweek used to come out. Um, your older listeners will remember this. At, at the end of every campaign, they came out with a book. Uh, about that campaign that they had compiled as the campaign was going on. DeFrank came out this week. He's now since retired in defense of anonymous sources. And he says, I had a source starting in 1987. That was the best source of my entire reporting career. We started a, a conversation one night in a bar And this guy was very close to George H.W. Bush. And by the end of the campaign in 1988, I had some great uh, insights into the campaign. And we had an agreement, which was that when this source would ever be questioned, if he was a source, he would come out and say, it's complete bullshit. And he said, and that was our agreement. And in 1992, he was another great source. And in 1994, he was elected governor of Texas. And in 2001, I covered his inauguration as president of the United States. It was George W. Bush. (laughs) And and he said, this is how anonymous sources work. He says, Bush would call him up and he'd say, you're not going to believe this shit, Tom. (laughs) You know, and he would they'd go out and he would tell what was going on on the inside of the campaign, and 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 he says, and Tom DeFranco says, this is how it, it works. He says there are presidents who are sources. He says when he was working, where he was covering Gerald Ford, when he covered Jimmy Carter, when he covered Ronald Reagan. There were times he would, give, you know, George H. W. Bush and Bill Clinton. He would get calls from the president himself sometimes in the middle of the you know middle of the yeah. late at night saying hey i want to talk to you put me on background as an anonymous source because because they wanted to respond to other sources or get uh-huh. a narrative out there and he <laughs> says and then i'm sitting there he says in the white house press room with the president up there presidents of both parties bashing anonymous sources when they were my anonymous as source, source he says, this is this is a necessity to a free press you need those anonymous sources so i just thought that that was a, that was a great story do you uh, uh
0: these anonymous sources for this particular story where the president yeah. of the united states called uh, uh our our heroes losers and suckers and if you don't think that he was capable of saying it, just play the tape of what he said about john mccain uh there and i'll get off of that um I mean, I, for me, it doesn't seem like it's, it's a stretch it to figure true. out. That's
1: a problem. It, 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 yeah. rings. It, I mean, you, rings you
0: can, true. you can hear him saying it. Oh, and by the way, we're going to get to Bob Woodward where he has accusations yeah. of what he said about generals. Yeah. Uh, they're,
1: they're a bunch of effing pussies is what he yeah. said. Yep. And that's uh, on tape.
0: Uh, wait till that audio gets played. Have they, yeah. played, have they released the audio? Of that?
1: They haven't released it yet. Woodward, Woodward knows what he's doing. He's going to release these, you know, every so many yeah. days well okay well, let's let's pivot there but let's we, finish though on the atlantic story and this is why yeah. i think that this cuts this is why i think that this cuts um it, it it cuts because um he doesn't have much of a defense because of exactly what he said about john mccain Um, There are White House officials, some of whom are on the record, saying that he's made comments that he doesn't like to be around amputees or war wounded. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't like that. Um, you have, you have um, people who are close in Trump's orbit. Um, you go back to the, the prenup that he had with Marla Maples, his second wife, where it was when their, before their daughter was born. He had a provision in there that if the daughter ends up going into the military, she would forfeit all rights to an inheritance. I mean, th- there's something intrinsically there, psychological, what have you, when it comes to the military. Um, I happen to have a theory on Trump and the theory is, is that this is a guy who sees the, sees the presidency as a stage and a screen. It's performance for him. And he likes to come off as the tough man. He likes to be, you know, he likes to be the strong man. He likes to be surrounded with the pomp and the ceremony and the circumstance of the office. Performing the office is another story entirely. Um, but, but this is a guy, um, that, um, has never, is the first American president who's become president, who has not had any prior experience as either an elected official or a cabinet officer or a member of the military. Uh, so he comes from an entirely different world. Uh, and and this is a guy that I think John McCain and Barack Obama uh, just set off, and Mitt Romney as well, just, I think, set off something deep in his psyche uh, they're just triggers for him. And, um, uh, why I think that, you know, stop psychoanalyzing the president here and moving to why I think this resonates. It's because the, the military is still the one institution in this country, which has become so cynical that is still very much revered and respected.
0: Well, we all know somebody that served, um, exactly. you know, and we're sitting in North Dakota where we have a very high uh, percentage of our population that has served. Um, uh, and, it's, it's just jaw dropping to me and I'll close it with that. Uh, but I'm, uh, but there's no doubt in my mind he said it. And uh, obviously as you're pointing out uh, a lot of people, even those that support the man it, there, it's tough for them to argue that this wasn't uttered from his mouth, whether it was that day or any other time. And again, if for those that are in doubt saying there's no way he could possibly, I just keep pointing to what he said about John McCain in yeah. front of a crowd on video. Um, Other things that are recorded that I'm sure they're going to try to pivot from, or as you mentioned, Bob Woodward got a book coming out. Uh, I think probably every president that has sat down with Bob Woodward has come to regret it at some point. Am I wrong?
1: Uh, the guy's good. Let's just put it that way. He's uh-huh. good.
0: <laughs> here's here's what. So we got these. They uh, got the audio recordings at the president's, yeah. and and now there's a, a hunt to figure out who cleared the fact that the president Donald Trump had 18 recorded conversations. Jared
1: Kushner did.
0: Jared Kushner is who it is. Well, Jared why Kushner. Kushner the, why are they saying it was Lindsey Graham?
1: <laughs> no, well, Jared Kushner encouraged him to do it. Uh, was a Was a source for Woodward himself, and Lindsey Graham also encouraged Trump. But it was it was Kushner who thought that this was going to be a good idea. Oh, Jared. But, but what's, what's what's remarkable here about Woodward is that he records his conversations. He's a meticulous note taker. Um, and his writing can be um, can be riveting, but it can also it's, it's in one of two gears. It's either riveting or tedious. Mm. Um, and and um, but he gets all of his facts out there. Uh, and, and the thing about Woodward that he did that's extraordinary is this was the first time he released the audio tapes of of any conversation that he's had with the president. Well, and I think he did that to back it up because he came out and he's going to, he's going to tell Scott Pelley on 60 minutes this Sunday night that he did it because some of the things that many of the things that Trump said was just jaw dropping. And and that, you know, here it is in his own words, you can hear it, you know, rather than coming out and saying, well, that's fake news. And you made up your sources. No, here it is. The president in his own words. Uh, Let's go with that angle.
0: And because you say this Sunday, uh, which is going to be like uh, September 13th, 13th, uh, the only defense, the only defense that I am seeing from uh, uh, people that are the 42%. Uh, that, you know, reach out to me and push back on my, my opinions on things. Right. You know what? If Bob Woodward knew all this and he thought it was so serious, why He's did he wait He's not the president
1: till- of the United States. Bingo.
0: He's not the president. He's a reporter. Yeah. Why did he wait till now? You know what? This <laughs> guy on February 7th told a journalist, a reporter, that this thing is deadly. It's airborne. It's much worse than the flu. I, there was a timeline of, from that to going to rallies saying, hey, this is the next Democrats' hoax to standing on the White House lawn saying I take no responsibility at all to having another conversation with Bob Woodward, a reporter, uh, saying uh, you know that this uh, uh, this is just as bad as it's you know, going to be, and that uh, he's trying to downplay it because he doesn't want to cause a panic. Well, President Donald yeah. Trump is trying to say he doesn't want to cause any panic over this. And when I think, had he, I'm sure he was sitting in the oval office behind the situation or the desk. Uh, and he was probably uh, having the conversations there with Bob Woodward. If he had the same conversation and that same somber tone that he did with Woodward, but he was looking at a camera and talking to you and I and everyone else listening to this, it would have made a big difference in how we perceive how he handled the situation
1: this goes back to my earlier point about Donald Trump seeing the presidency as performance on a stage rather than performance of the actual job, because what Donald Trump doesn't understand and what um, every good politician does is that good policy is good politics. I mean, Donald Trump was sitting, I went back and looked at the numbers. He was sitting at a 49% approval number in February. Um, That was his best in the Gallup poll ever. Not bad when you're moving into a reelection campaign, Mm -hmm. but, he botched the response to the virus and I've thought what would have happened had he come out and leveled with the American people right out of the gate was up front, told them the truth, didn't call it a hoax, told the Americans to brace themselves, handed it over to the experts and let the experts take it from there. He'd be a hero and be coasting to reelection right
0: now. I, I, I agree. I think and that's why I say if he, if he had those comments that he told Woodward instead of yes. keeping it di- disclosed, but he said it to us on camera from the white house saying, look, folks, uh, we gotta, want, we got to be real here.
1: Yeah. If you want any difference between his approach and the approach of a leader, go and take a look if you can find, it's on youtube and you can find the the one with the closed captioning or the translation Angela Merkel addressed the German people which is very rare for a German chancellor to take a primetime speech to the German people she addressed them in late march and it was the unvarnished truth about the difficult days ahead and she is talking to the German people about this is the greatest crisis the world has seen since the end of the Second World War. We need to brace ourselves to our duty, take care of one another, reach out to those people through letters and phone calls that we can't talk to in person. I mean, it was it was a calming speech. You know, leadership is about telling the unvarnished truth. Mm-hmm. I, I, I told you that I was reading The Splendid and the Vile about Winston Churchill, where he just, he, in the height of World War II, he he felt he was energized by telling the, the British people the unvarnished truth that they didn't want to hear. But FDR did that in 1941 and 42 in the darkest days of the Second World War. JFK did that in the Cuban Missile Crisis. George W. Bush did that after 9-11. That is what leadership is all about. And, and uh, John Barry... Um, wrote um, the definitive history of, of the uh, Spanish flu pandemic a century ago. At the end of his book, The Great Influenza, he writes the following words. I have a copy here out of my library. You um, came prepared today. I came prepared. I do my, I do my homework every week. Um, <laughs> so so um, he, the, 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 these are the final words in, in the, at the end of the book, The Great Influenza. So the final lesson of 1918, a simple one, yet the one most difficult to execute, is the one that those who occupy positions of authority must lessen the panic that can alienate the members of of a society. A society that takes it as its motto, every man for itself, is no longer a civilized society. Those in authority must retain the public's trust. The way to do that is to distort nothing, to put the best face on nothing, to try to manipulate no one. Lincoln said that first and best a leader must make whatever horror exists concrete. Only then will people be able to break it apart. Book was published in uh,
0: the 1990s. Yeah, there was, I mean, there 2000, a lot. 2004 it
1: came out in 2004.
0: A lot to unpack there, but the thing that gave me, but it's pause, true gave, gave me pause was when, when it's every man for himself. And I think about, on uh on nd explains facebook page talking about you know the the need for just wearing a mask you know this is not they're not asking you to sacrifice a lot and saying you know what it, it's we have uh yep uh, our personal freedoms but you have a collective responsibility towards one another and seeing some of the comments of when do i have a responsibility for my neighbor and just yeah. be
1: uh, the approach. Well, that. it goes back to the Gospels. <laughs> if, you, if you really want to really have that debate, folks, it goes back to the Gospels. <laughs> I don't know what church you're going to, <laughs> what faith you subscribe to, but it's, it's you know, the the, the golden rule and, and the greatest commandment is, is yeah, anyway.
0: Yeah, just, uh, uh, but here it's we rock are. It's the medlock
1: of Western civilization.
0: Yeah, we take, are. to care
1: for your neighbor in the least of these.
0: We're six months now into this from when we knew, seven months from when the president, yeah. we're beyond. Seven months from when the president told Bob Woodward behind closed doors how serious this was, that he had all the intelligence he needed at his fingertips, and then he turned around and I'm going to say it, he lied about the severity
1: of this to you there's and no, I and everybody no else listening. And uh, this is why. This is why I think, unlike all of his other books that are coming out, um, and and the publishing world is going to take a big hit if Trump. Loses in November because well maybe not maybe there'll be all the tell-all memoirs that'll be coming out for the next few years. Yeah, we'll um, all
0: the Sean Spicer's and Huckabee's exactly, Sanders and all exactly. are going on um, Dancing with the Stars you know, and booking. and I
1: always I always say if if he loses because because like I said you'd be there's crazy to count him out.
0: Yeah, there's no um, doubt. Uh, speaking of, uh, we got to wrap up because we've got the election ongoing and now we're seeing all these reports uh, coming out of foreign nations, you know, wanting to yeah. to interfere and DHS. Now there's reports. Um uh well there's a Russian agent, I guess, that's been working with Rudy Giuliani.
1: Yeah, which which has been providing information to Senator Ron Johnson and Congressman Devin Nunes. Um and, and the Treasury Department came out and said, "Hey, this guy's a this guy's a Russian agent." And uh, I know that that Ron Johnson, Senator from Wisconsin, and Lindsey Graham were banking on releasing some kind of a report, which was going to be an October, surprise against Burisma and, and Hunter Biden, uh, what have you. I, I think that um, taking the taking that aside, looking at it from the standpoint. Um, what we've been seeing when we haven't even talked about the justice department saying they want to come up, take over the case in defending president Trump against a rape allegation yeah. from, from decades ago. That's haunting by the way. Well, but what's happening is, you know, the, the, I always talk about norms. I always talk about guardrails and, and what's happening is in just four years, you're seeing when and Jeb Bush warned us this in the Republican primary debates back in 2015, a chaos presidency. The system is not designed to have a chaotic president. The system is designed to have a calm and steady president, not not an intelligent president. Because we haven't had—I mean, there have been presidents that haven't been very intelligent. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's just be honest about throughout history. But to have somebody who has an understanding of the job and the duty, and somebody who is calm and reassuring. Uh, and what we have here is a president who thrives on chaos and is sowing chaos. And what's happening is it's wearing down the system. That's what's happening here. Right. Um, you, you know, you have a, the system is not designed to have a president that when you give him information, he doesn't like, he explodes mm-hmm. and throws a, throws a temper tantrum. That's what you're hearing from all the sources. Um, and so you're, 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 you're shading the intelligence. This is a national security matter here. You're shading the intelligence um, and coloring it to placate him to please him, which means you're not telling him the truth. You're telling him the truth as he wants to believe it, that's, and that's dangerous. That's dangerous for our democracy. It's dangerous yeah. for our national security and our well-being. It would be it would be akin to George W. Bush to tie this back to nine eleven coming back and giving him all of the intelligence. For example, a month before 9-11, he received the intelligence report that Osama bin Laden was determined to strike in the United States. They knew something was coming. There have been investigations in and what, what failed and what worked, and, and that's all part of the historical record. But then the equivalent of, of Bush, who they said in August of 2001, was really had his hair on fire trying to figure out, okay, what do we know? Where, where are they right now? It'd be the equivalent of him saying to them, I don't want to hear this. That's not true. And they don't give them that information.
0: Yeah. It, it just it, troubling where we're at and where we're at is we got to wrap up for this week. We,
1: we, you, will... you, you dipped, you dipped in there, you dipped in there to, um, Susan Collins, thesaurus. troubling. Yeah. Well, you're cons- Turned, aren't you, my friend?
0: My my bro is frowned right now, <laughs> or I don't even know. <laughs> now uh, we're just being catty. Yeah, <laughs> I get. I was called shrill by Mike Jacobs, columnist of uh, Grand Forks Herald. He t- took uh, my idea. today said, "Hey, this is a great idea." Tyler's column can, columns can be kind of shrill at times. <laughs> uh. It is what it
1: is it is what it is
0: uh uh, jason we got to wrap up this week we've got to pick up the dhs story got to pick up uh the russian intelligence all of that next week but hey man good to catch up you take care we'll chat again next week all right
1: all right take care thanks buddy
0: yeah you bet